this week on Dig Me Out. Never think to ever look around, never see it coming at you with you. Head in the clouds, looking like a fool, drinking with like your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, Jay, it's it time. Is, it's, it is time to welcome back to the show the man who talks to other people for us because we don't like, <laughs> like talking to strangers, Mr. Chip Midnight. Chip, I'm here. I'm here. here. I'm here. Yes. Come on, he's much better at it. Oh God, I I thank the heavens every day that you are here to to help us <laughs> because that was not that was not some of our finer work when Jay and I would have a have a a, a Google Doc with all the questions and then we would go <laughs> one by one through each question back and forth without ask, asking any follow up questions uh, like rookie interviewers that we were. I've been so, there. <laughs> We're just like, I have questions and I must get through all them all. And I will not actually pay attention to any of your answers. It's so fun. Go ahead. But it's funny. I have a story that relates to this interview. Okay. Who was the, uh, the person you interviewed for this particular episode? So for this interview, I talked to Joe Pernice from the Pernice brothers who are reissuing or maybe for the first time ever on vinyl, the 1998, which is 25 years ago. Um, album Overcome by Happiness. And, you know, going back to talking about the two of you having questions. So in 1998, I had a webzine called Swizzle Stick. I know, Tim, you were familiar because I used mm-hmm. to do like a mystery mix CD where I asked my readers to send me a CD and not tell me who the bands were. And then I would review it song by song. And then the idea was that I was going to send you back a CD and ask you to review it and kind of tell me your thoughts completely like a blind blind taste test. Just tell me what you think of the songs without knowing anything about the bands. In 1998, Overcome by Happiness was released by the Pernice Brothers on Sub Pop Records. And I decided that that was going to be my pick for album of the year 1998. And so what I wanted to do was interview Joe Pernice at the time to let him know, to bestow that honor of the Swizzle Stick album of the year. And I got a phone number and I called and I got a voicemail. And I don't remember exactly what the voicemail message, but it's kind of like, this is Joe, you've reached, you know, my answering machine, leave me a message. And so the other, uh, maybe about six months ago, I have this big kind of milk carton, uh, milk, milk, not milk carton, milk um, crate full of audio cassettes from all my interviews from probably 1992 to the mid 2004, 2005. And I was going through them because none of them are labeled, of course. And so I found a cassette and I actually found the one with Joe's answering machine. So I thought it was funny, and and in the interview, I tell him that I found it, but I was going through them the last couple of days trying to find it so that I could digitize it and put it as part of this interview, and I can't find it. But how it relates back to what you were saying before is I found a lot of old interviews I did, and man, those interviews are bad. I was <laughs> I was not, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm much better these days, but those interviews are, I thought about digitizing a lot of them, but like I'm not sure that I want anybody to hear them because they're not very good. Does anybody look at their former self and think, man, I really had it together. I was killing it. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. Cause that means you've either stalled or regressed. 
Yeah. Yes. So, yes. yes. I say, Chip, what you should do is maybe just snip the good parts and just put them up on like Instagram or TikTok. Just like 30 seconds, because I'm sure you can find a nice 30 seconds to 60 seconds in any interview, because I got to imagine that the list of names is pretty awesome. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, the, the list of names is great. The interviews themselves are not great. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. Um, I need to be hip to the TikTok platform. So yes. Tim, we'll take this offline someday and you'll uh, you'll walk me I'll, through. I'll becoming... walk you through that. Becoming a viral superstar on TikTok. I I I have a familiarity with that. I have gone viral on on the TikTok, the Tickety Talk, nice. and uh, it was terrifying. So yeah. be prepared that when fame hits you, uh, that you don't have a, a panic attack. Okay. <laughs> About all I'm, the people right now who know you who you are, I'm and ready. all the and all the things you might have said over the years that are yes. uh, politically incorrect. Uh oh. So anyway. So, so let me tell you, so the Pernice brothers, um, I asked you guys before we started, if you were familiar and you said familiar in name only, I'm trying to remember how I discovered the record in 98. I bought it new or, you know, I have a CD of it and I don't remember exactly how I got turned on to it, whether I read a review or it was an ad, or maybe a, a friend of mine might've told me about them. I would say, do you, I mean, you remember Sub Pop in the early nineties and Sub Pop really did mm -hmm. this. I mean, it was, it was a punk label, right? And then at some point... And there were always kind of bands on that label that weren't real punk, but the punk stuff and the grunge stuff over overshadowed everything else. By the mid to late nineties, there were the the focus was shifting, I think. And the Pernice brothers on sub pop, if you if you had said that in nineteen ninety one, everybody would have laughed and said, No way. I the best way I can describe them is like almost like mature, really good songwriting. 70s i don't want to say soft rock but almost like the band bread a little bit maybe mm -hmm. jackson brownell it's it's like um joe's got a really soothing kind of just a really a pleasant voice to listen to it's just very calming music mm -hmm. which again mm -hmm. is totally unlike a sub pop thing that you'd expect but it, it's very yeah. lush sounding he had come from a band called the scud mountain boys and and because this is a podcast about the nineties, we talked about that a little bit about the Scud Mountain Boys and how they started. And you'll hear the story. They started in um, I think he said Northampton, Massachusetts. And he said it was a really happening scene at the time. Buffalo Tom, Dinosaur Jr., all those bands were kind of starting in that area and he knew all those guys. And his bands were never quite in the same ballpark as those bands, but it was just a thriving scene at the time. But so the cool thing is, right? So Joe mentions a few times that he doesn't really listen to his old music that he puts it out and then it's there for the listeners and he moves on to the next thing and he's had a pretty prolific career he's released a number of pernice brothers albums he's released albums under the name chappaquiddick skyline and big tobacco i'm sure there's some other projects he's done that i can't remember offhand but he he's a he's one of those guys who just is writes and records and releases stuff a lot but Brady Brock, who was a, I think a nineties indie kind of folky indie rock musician. I have a CD of his grew up to become a publicist and Brady works for new West records. Mm -hmm. And Brady loved the Pernice brothers overcome by happiness. And were it not for Brady's involvement, this re-release would not be out. I mean, Brady spearheaded the whole thing. He worked to get the rights to release it. Um, he found a designer 
part of the interview is the the deluxe version of the album comes with like a 52 page booklet and it's a song by song you know thoughts about each song it's a whole history it's the discography it's got lyrics it's it's a it's a complete package and so i actually didn't ask him too many questions about the history of the band or about what the songs were about because i think the true people that love this music are going to buy that version of it and i mean it's all covered in that book there's no nothing new i could ask so there was still plenty i mean we talked for an hour there was still plenty to talk about but uh you know I would say I would say fans should go out and, and pick up the deluxe version because it really is exquisite packaging and and even Joe admits that well he wasn't real excited about the the concept and he and he, he said he sort of ignored Brady a, a few times and kind of pushed him off and said yeah I'm not interested eventually he came around and and I think he's he's happy now um, New West has licensed the music and so they're going to actually be releasing. I think he said all the Bernice Brothers albums over the course of time on vinyl mm. for the first time. So mm. that's really cool. Yeah. I will tell one, one other quick story before we get going. So please do my, my wife and daughter were at the Lizzo concert in Cleveland on Friday night. And that's when we did the interview and we have two dogs. We have a dog that is 10 months old. So I'd say he's kind of still in that puppy phase. Um, smart enough to know to go to the back door and kind of paw at the door when he wants to go out. But, you know, every once in a while, there's still an accident in the house. So get ready to do the interview. Wife and the daughter are rocking out to Lizzo in Cleveland. <laughs> and I hear the dogs kind of pawing at the door where I'm doing the interview. And so I let him in. And about five minutes into the interview, the, the 10-month-old puppy, um, I'm not quite sure how to say it. He, Makes uh, a number two. He makes a number two on the floor about six feet away from me. <laughs> Fortunately, Joe and I were doing the Zoom call with no camera on because I, you know, I couldn't say like, um, Joe, hey, listen, I'm going to have to pause or call you back because I got to go clean up dog poop. So I just, <laughs> I let it sit there for half an hour or at least half an hour. Uh, and I am glad there was no video. I'm glad Joe didn't see me holding my nose, you know, silently gagging throughout the interview. Uh, I, I fortunately made it through the interview and, and all was good after the fact, but that was, um, that was an experience that I will not forget. And I don't ever wish to repeat. It, uh, it got up in your nostrils and just, it kind of just lives oh, there now, doesn't it? It was, it was terrible. You can kind of like taste it on the back of your throat because <laughs> it's up, it's up there and it like starts to And so now down. let's get to that interview. Let's get to that. <laughs> Thanks, Chip. That was a great segue. I'm, I'm, thank you for putting in not only the time, but the dedication uh, to to forge ahead when the world was against you. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's go to that interview with Joe Pernice. So while I definitely, I mean, Overcome by Happiness is going to be the main part of this. I do, since the podcast is about the 90s, um, if you can talk just a little bit about Scud Mountain Boys and kind of how, how you entered the 90s and kind of what your, um, you know, the 
did, did you have big hopes and dreams in the, in the early 90s when you started the band or was it just something to no. just fun and with friends? Not at all, yeah. I, I started, uh, Stephen and I started the Scud Mountain Boys when we were, um, I was about to go to graduate school. I was, uh, I was going to the MFA program at UMass and uh, I had a year off in between school, between undergraduate. I went there for undergraduate. And then uh, I had a year off and I worked in like a bakery deli and Steven uh, also worked there. He was going back to university and we just, we worked together and we just realized we liked the same music and we, uh, you know, we, um, we both played music and we hit it off. He's a good guy. I liked him a lot. And uh, we just played, we got together and decided we're going to, let's get together and just play, see what comes of it. And, uh, in the first song we ever played, I had just worked up an arrangement or most of an arrangement to a share song, Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves. And that was with no question the first song he and I ever played together. It ended up, it ended up on our, uh, our first album. So, yeah, we hit it off pretty quick musically and otherwise. He's one of my best friends. And, uh, but I was still, you know, I was playing music purely for fun, which I think is how it really ought to be. Uh, and I, I had no no desire to be in a band uh, for a profession or, you know, uh, I was about to start university and I wanted to be a professor. And um, just kept playing music. We had a little hiatus. We started out kind of as an electric band and then that took a then that kind of fell apart and we, we, uh, you know, reinvented ourselves or we had always played, um, kind of this acoustic countryish type of music, but not just country music, but more of a laid back mellow, uh, vibe after shows, you know, we'd play a local show in Northampton. It was Northampton mass was kind of happening as a music scene. There were tons of bands, a few good places to play shows and people knew each other. So by that time, Bruce Tull had, you know, he started, he was playing with us also one of the original members. And after we, we might play an electric set at a club and then, you know, a bunch of people would go over to Bruce's house and we'd just sit around and, you know, have a few drinks or whatever, and just play songs, just sitting around a table and, uh, you know, there'd be a crowd of people or sometimes there'd be only a few of us. But it was really fun. And we realized, boy, we, we like playing music this way much better than, you know, trying to be, a, a, you know, a band that we really weren't. And it, it just grew out of that. And again, I was still had no intentions of doing it as a career or as my job. I certainly started to really love writing songs and it, it, it started to grow. My, my desire to do it started to really grow. And as I was finishing my master's degree, as I was, you know, wrapping that up, I thought like, you know, kind of playing music seemed to displace wanting to be in academia. And, uh, and it coincided that we, <coughs> sorry, we made a, a couple little records for a local label and uh then from there other labels just started coming out of the woodwork and it's a pretty exciting time for a little while if you if that's where you want the route you want to go 
we ended up uh, signing with Sub Pop and kind of that, 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 that's the end of it. That That's really how it happened. Yeah. And so that was um, early, early to mid nineties. Yes. We signed in 1995. Okay. So we, we were, I think by the beginning of 1995, when did we put out our records? Oh, the first record we made in, we made our records in 94, I think. I think we made Pine Box and Dance the Night Away in 1994. And Pine Box, Dance the Night Away was the second album we made, but it was released first. That came out in January of 95. And then I think the first album we made, Pine Box, came out in February of 95. So we put an album out, one album out one month and one album out the next month. And uh, from there, we, you know, we just played a handful of shows. I was still in school and uh, I still had, I think, another year left of my degree. I'm pretty sure we, uh, yeah, we signed a record deal and maybe, I think, September or August of 95. And then we made the Massachusetts in the fall of 1995. And then it came out in early 1996. Yeah. So that's the, uh, somewhere around there. I think that's the sequence. So I'm a little geographically illiterate. And so I just looked up where Northampton in it. And I, yeah. I guess I assumed that it was pretty close to Boston, but it's not, it's more, it's closer to like Hartford. Is that right? Yeah. It's about 45 minutes from Hartford. It's about two hours from Boston, maybe a little less, a hundred miles, hundred and something miles. It's where most there's a five college like UMass Amherst. Amherst is the next town, so you have Amherst College, UMass Amherst, Hampshire College, Smith College is in Northampton, and Mount Holyoke College. So there are five. You know, it's, there's a lot of school out there, so it attracted a lot of musicians. And in that early '90s, the city of Northampton was a pretty happening little spot. Like when I was at UMass. Uh, David Berman, the Silver Jews were there. You had like, you know, I went to UMass with the guys from Buffalo Tom and, you know, Mascus is from right around there in Amherst and Sebado was from right in that area. So there was a lot going on. And were you playing shows with all those bands? None of them. Okay. I think, uh, I think when I was in college, I played, a in a pick in a band with some friends and we did a show. I've known Bill from Buffalo Tom forever like before music. And I think my band and his band played one show at a party that got shut down and that kind of thing. I remember meeting Jay Maskus in the early eight mid, like I went to UMass in 85. And I think that year I went to a party and he was playing drums for somebody. And I just, I had no idea who he was. And uh, he was phenomenal drummer. He was very, very small, skinny guy. I like, and he was a, phenomenal drummer i couldn't believe it and i even went up to him and i think i remember offering him a beer and i think he said like you didn't drink or something like that and i was like well it's weird not weird but different but uh yeah i never played with them and i lou barlow and i we at one point we lived in the same town we actually were on the same label and we actually have the same birthday but a year apart we've never met wow but interesting, I wrote a I wrote a novel and I have a fake chapter that involves Sebado with has Lou Barlow in it and uh, 
I wrote to him and said, hey, Lou, I want to, is it cool? I want to write a ch fictitious chapter where, uh, I, you know, you yell at a crowd or something. Someone's talking during your show and you, you get, you, you, you know, you tell them to get the fuck out or something. And I said, I don't make you into too big of an asshole. And he goes, oh, no, you can make me into an asshole. That's cool. <laughs> so that was, that was pretty good. I'm a big Shut fan though. I, I've liked them. I've been a big fan of Sebado forever. So it's kind of funny because I actually remember something like that really happening at Stashes, going to see Sebado, and it's actually one of my friends who kept bumping the stage and bumping the amps. <laughs> and at some point, I, I think Lou probably told him to knock it off. So reality. I mean, I think it happened a couple times. Yeah, you're right, right. But you know what? I, if, I've been in that spot. I haven't told anyone to. I've never done it, but there's certainly times when I think everybody is on stage, and you just want to like, you know go loose on someone but you don't you know yeah you do or you don't i never did yeah so were, were you aware of what was going on with sub pop in the early 90s were you into the nirvanas and the mud honeys and screaming trees in those bands yeah i liked i liked mud honey i nirvana i mean nirvana I, obviously who, who could see what they were I, I wasn't into them i didn't dislike them but they didn't it wasn't really hitting me uh but I really liked Mud Honey, um, but I wasn't a huge like collector of all things sub pop. If that's what you're getting at, no, I was yeah. not. Well, you know, as a as a fan in the early or whenever Nirvana kind of broke is when I started just basically looking for the uh, sub pop stamp on the back of the CD and buying pretty much everything. And yeah, if you think if you think about the time period between Nevermind coming out and Scud Mountain Boys coming out, it wasn't that many years, but it Only a couple like, of years. Yeah. But it seemed like, um, and, and I think I've read, is it because one of the guys left Sub Pop maybe? Is that why the music taste kind of kind of like getting away from what they had started out as? As kind of just like a really uh, DIY kind of, uh, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. I know thanks to Nirvana, that's probably why I got signed to Sub Pop. Because they, you know, the stories are all pretty well documented about yeah. how they were like, you know, getting their lights shut off and all that stuff. And, you know, Bleach was, Bleach was, a, made some money for them. And then I think they did a deal with Warner Music, which gave them a huge influx of money. And I think, I think that, uh, I, I, I loved Poneman, man. I think Jonathan Poneman, his, I love talking to the guy. I thought his, like, I mean, not just because he liked my band, but I thought he had really good taste in music, and uh, he knew a lot about music. Fascinating guy, and I think he had maybe a different kind of vision than Bruce Pavitt. I don't know. I never met Bruce Pavitt. I was on the label for I don't know how many years, and I, I never never met him. I, he was sort of out of the loop at that point. Yeah, and uh, so I, I can't really speak to to uh, to that. What um. You know, for again, for those of us who are more like fans and behind the scenes, what uh, what kind of financial? I mean, you don't have to tell me the numbers, but did, did Sub Pop give you money to record albums to tours? Was it a, was it a good and worthwhile yeah. deal? Oh yeah, it was definitely a good deal. When I signed to them, they had some money, and so like we uh, they were they were making offers in the same kind of ballpark as say Electra Records or even you know, better than what Atlantic records offered us. You know what I mean? 
So, yeah. you know, and I think, I think, uh, I think it all is just the money's, uh, the money's kind of irrelevant in a way. Like it, it's what you're, uh, it depends, like the lawyers deal with the money. You know what I mean? Right. I kind of, kind of stayed out of it. So you had other labels that were interested? Oh, are you kidding me? That was, that was crazy time. I'd come home from school and it would be like, you know, Stephen and I from the Scud Mountain Boys lived in the same apartment at the time. And, you know, the aunt, we'd come home and turn the answering machine on. It was back when you had an answering machine with a little tape in it. And every day it would be like, this is Joe Schmo from, you know, Warner Brothers. This is Joe Schmo from Atlantic. This is Joe Schmo from Electra. This is Joe Schmo. The day I signed to Sub Pop, we played at CMJ and a guy comes up to me and he said, Oh, I'm from American recordings. We want to, we want to sign you guys. I was like, well, you, I just signed a record contract about 45 minutes ago. So you're, you're a little late, but it was pretty, it was crazy at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So fast forward just a little bit, not, not a whole lot of time elapsed right between the Scott mountain boys and you deciding to do something mm-hmm. kind of not, not on your own, but on your own. Yeah. Different. Yes. Yes. And and again, Sub Pop was ready, anxious, willing, and able to put something out. Was that the did you go into yeah, that well, knowing that they were gonna support it? Oh yeah, the person who signed the Scud Mountain Boys to Sub Pop was Joyce Linehan. She was the head of A and R at Sub Pop. And it just so happened that her office was East Coast. She was in Dorchester, Massachusetts, okay. which is very close to where I grew up, and we had a lot in common because we were Bostonians. Both went to Catholic school, both like she's Irish. My, you know, I grew up in a, my mother's side of the family is Irish. We had a lot in common and musically. So she signed us. And then when I wanted to, she was still our A&R person when I wanted to do something else. And to Joyce's credit, from day one of the, from when she showed up at a Scud Mountain Boy show, she said that night, she said, we want to sign you guys. And I was like, you haven't heard anything else. And she said, well, I just heard your set. And I just heard this seven inch you made. And I, you know, those songs you did tonight, have they been recorded yet? Or they've been put out? And I said, no. And she said, well, we want to sign you. And that was just off of a show. Yeah. And from that day on, and so to chase the uh, chronology of it a little, she left Sub Pop, became my manager. Then she was no longer my manager. She became my partner. And she and I then started a record label that we still have together to this day. So I've been with Joyce Linnan for 28 years. And in all of the time that we've made music together, that we've put out records, at first she financed them. Like I didn't have the money to pay them and to make the records. And she did. Yeah. And she never once ever said to me, even when she was with Sub Pop, she never once said to me, let me hear some songs. What do you, what do you, uh, I never jumped through any hoops. She'd say, what do you need to get it done? And I'd say, I need X, Y, and Z. And she'd say, I can do that or I can't do that. But she never, ever held my feet to the fire and made me like prove anything. She just trusted me. And I just, you know, that's a kind of a relationship that is pretty rare. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think you could ask for more. And I don't think very many people have that kind of relationship. No, I don't think so. So I saw the it's the 40 page booklet that comes with the re-release of the album. And so I'm going to recommend that listeners 
pick that up. I don't want to necessarily ask you to walk through that because it's it's it tells the whole story. <laughs> um, but I have some questions sort of related to the story that you may have covered a little bit or maybe not. When you were making, sure. you know, in 1998, when Overcome by Happiness came out, <laughs> I'm trying to think what albums. So 20, a 25-year anniversary in 98 would have been 73. And I don't, you know, in 98, I don't remember bands doing 25th anniversaries of a right. album that came out in 73. Would you have ever believed in 1998 when you were making this record that you would be talking about it again 25 years later? No, I, to me, the records are kind of over a few. I've said it a million times. I've said it in tons of interviews, and it really is the truth. I don't really think about the music much when it's done because I'm on, I, my, the thing I love to do is write songs and make recordings. So that's how I like to spend my time. So even when we were making Overcome by Happiness, I already had a list of songs that I was thinking of doing next. And as soon as I always say, like, I cleared out the pipes, as soon as that record was over, like, I don't really think about it too much. So, I, I, no, I would never have thought that I'd be talking about it 25 years later, because I probably didn't want to talk about it. I wasn't really, <laughs> not that I was, it was frustrating or anything. I just, my mind was somewhere else six months into 1998, you know? It's, it's funny, because you talked about answering machines, and... In 1998, I had started a website, and it was me and another guy. 1998 wasn't necessarily early days to start websites, but we started a web magazine, a web mm -hmm. music scene. And uh, the guy that started it with me, I, I don't know if he introduced me to Overcome by Happiness or whether I found it, but regardless, um, the two of us decided that was going to that like we were going to name that our album of the year for the website. And uh, I actually set up an interview with you and. I was recently going through a box of cassettes, unlabeled cassettes, and I came across um, your answering machine message. <laughs> and, no kidding. And I never, we actually never did the interview. If I can dig that out, I'm going to digitize it and put it as part of this interview because. Uh, oh my God, that'd be hilarious. Yeah, that is funny. <laughs> so, yeah, That's so we actually good. never, we, ever, we never did talk in 1998. So I'm glad to be doing it 25 years later. Yeah, it's cool. I'm glad the record's coming out in vinyl too. Like it, when back then, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, we made it to be on vinyl, you know, even though CDs were the big thing, that's what was hot. We recorded it on two inch analog tape and our dream was to go a triple a, a to a to a, right. To, yeah. uh, record analog, go analog master, and then go right to, to, uh, what do you call to, uh, LP. And it didn't, it didn't happen. Although I do have two, um, test pressings. Sub Pop did test press the vinyl in 98, but I think by the time they were going to do it, I think they were in a bit of a money situation and they decided never to do it. So I actually have an a LP of Overcome from 1998. Wow. That's amazing. Yes, uh, I don't know. Probably, <laughs> probably sell it. I've, I've never, you know what? I've, I bet you I've heard it one time. Really? I bet you I've queued it up a single time. Maybe not even the whole thing. I, I wouldn't even doubt it if I'd never listened to the whole thing. I don't even have a turntable, so I definitely haven't heard it in the last 20 years. Yeah. So is the impetus for this album coming out, was it really Brady driving it? Yeah, I had no, I, I wasn't even thinking of this record. He uh, got in touch with me and um, I wasn't really, at first I was super skeptical because to me it's ancient history, you know, and uh, the more I talked to him, I more the more I, you know, I liked what he was saying and I, they, you know, 
to be fair, that Sub Pop owns that album, and New West licensed the record from them. I don't own the album, so in a sense, they could have made a deal without even talking to me. I could have learned. That, I mean, that's what happened with one record, not to get too sidetracked, but one time after I had left Sub Pop, I got an email from some label in Spain that was said, hey, um, we licensed that Scud Mountain Boys sampler that we're putting out, and we're wondering if we can set up some interviews with you. And I was like, what? <laughs> so they went and licensed a bunch of the songs to this label. And to be fair, that label only did it because they were fans. But I'll tell you, the last thing I was going to do was do any kind of press for that. I had zero to do with it. It's a horrible, it's a horrible little collection of just horrible, but they didn't, they could have, New West could have just made the deal. He got in touch with me and said, we want to do this. And this is what I have in mind for packaging. And he sent me this whole big thing, which that he had done for, I think sparks or some, I think it was a sparks one. And, uh, and he said, but I don't want anything to do with it if you don't want to do it. And so I, you know, I was KG and I, you know, it took a little while to warm up, but he was legit and I got more and more into the idea of it. So much did I get into the idea of it that my partner Joyce and I just licensed our whole catalog to that label. So that New West great. is, yeah, they have, they're going to be the stewards of my catalog and I'm going to do a couple new albums for them. So going forward, I, I really liked it. It was a good fit. It took about a year for me to put that deal together or for us, not just me, but after about almost a year of talking, it all came together. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad I did it. And I, when I finally saw the finished product of the Overcome by Happiness deluxe box, I couldn't believe it. I, I was stunned. I was like, holy smokes, this is a lovely piece of, of a lovely artifact. And I, I'm so happy I did it. Yeah. And it is nice that it came out. I mean, when it came out originally. I lost you. Oh, you got me? Am I here? Hello? Yeah, I got you now. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, you know, when it came out in 98, I think that was right kind of before, maybe it was during like the Napster days, but. Um, oh, it was happening. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was, uh, I think it was just happening because yeah. I remember like hearing about it or thinking like, wow, that's weird. But anyway, <laughs> right. yeah. Um, but it is nice to be able to get it now on a, on a vinyl. I mean, like I said, I still have the CD, so I, I at least can see the art as opposed to buying it on iTunes or something where the art is the size of a postage stamp or whatever it is. Yeah. Different way of listening to music. I, don't, I guess I don't knock it. I, I really don't. And if not to get too sidetracked, but if Spotify was even remotely equitable to the artists, it would be a phenomenal thing because yeah. the it's a pretty amazing way to listen to music. And you know, it's 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 just unfortunate that they're so greedy, but you know that's how it is. But but you also do stuff through Bandcamp as well, right? Yeah, we well, yeah, we did all of our music through Bandcamp. We did a for the last few years. Bandcamp has been even doing our vinyl. Where Bandcamp does a vinyl, you can do a vinyl campaign with them, and uh, yeah, they're fantastic. And New West does their music through Bandcamp too. So I'm happy to. Uh, it's not like we're gonna we're deserting them or or going a different way. Yeah, and are you getting you're getting some money out of that? Um, I hope so. Out of Bandcamp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, th th that's why I've been able to keep to make records. I mean, Bandcamp. I don't know what. I don't know if everyone has the same deal from Bandcamp, but boy, did 
Bandcamp's fantastic. You yeah. know, I, I couldn't ask for a better deal than Bandcamp. There's, there, if, I would recommend that to anybody who is trying to start their own label. Do it that way. Own your stuff. You know, own your music and get paid a fair wage and build up your following on your own. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think you made like 80% of the money on Bandcamp oh, or something crazy. like 85%. And you got paid the next day. I mean, it's crazy. Like, you know, I don't know how much you know about record deals, but boy, you get, you wait a year for your royalties and then you don't even get all of them because they withhold some for, I mean, it's just, a, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's, it's can be potentially be really bad. But anyway, yeah. well, I, I don't know about that side of it. I know about from the <clears throat> publishing that, and I wasn't the publisher of the magazine, but <clears throat> that magazine Moo sold a lot of major label ads and yeah. the invoices sat, like we didn't get paid, uh, you know, the guy that published it didn't get paid for months and months and months to the point where he ended up folding the magazine because he didn't have enough to pay the printer. He was, yeah, he was owed so much money, but yeah, yeah, they were waiting for their pit. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're it's a big machine. I mean, they're always that's you know, record labels, even a label I was involved with, it was always like spend the money you made off of someone else's. I mean, a little not my label, a different label that uh, you know, you spend the money that you made uh, that you owe to artist A to make artist B's record and hope that that money comes in. So it's like a Ponzi scheme in a way, yeah. just as long as you can keep the flow going. I guess that's just how it is. So in some of the back in the day and even some of the press that's coming out now, you know, I know that um, Chicken Wire and Monkey Suit seem to be the songs that people like to talk about because of the stories. I'm wondering if you, and maybe you don't, <laughs> since you since you move past up pretty quickly, is there a song that you think is maybe overlooked on the album? Something you're particularly proud of that people don't ask you about? You know, I just listen to the record I, I probably listened to the record five times in the last two weeks because I'm going to play some shows and I have to actually relearn a few of the songs and there's a song called Shoes and Clothes which when I heard it I was like wow that came out really good and I forgot all about it like I don't know if it came out really good that other people will think that but for me I thought that 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 was right on that has yeah. that has something to it and there's a song uh, Dimmest Star which I thought came out really nicely too so those two, say, those, yeah those two really I like those a lot I was gonna say Dimmest Star is the one that I remember even from back in 98 really liking a lot and then re-listening to the album again it's um that would be that would be my pick for the kind of that was the last song I think I think if I remember right that song I wrote right before like maybe days before we were going to make the record and usually when I make a record there's always like a last minute dark horse that comes out of nowhere that you know I'll write and I think this is this song is better than all of them it has to be on the record I mean I don't know if that's true but I feel that way and that was the song on that record I remember that uh that song you know and it, I think that kind of usurped I wrote a song called uh what do you call courage up which was on my list of songs for that for overcome by happiness and i remember i think dimmest star bumped it off the list oh wow and i ended up recutting that recording that song later for a record called chappaquiddick skyline yeah i have i have that and i have the big take uh big not big takeover a uh, big tobacco cd Ooh, as well well hopefully those will be those will have a vinyl life with new west pretty soon 
Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I, I saw you twice on the Overcome by Happiness tour in Columbus. Um, okay. But but I don't remember who, who did you do? Were you do you remember what year? Um, no, but I remember the venues. I saw you at uh, Little Brothers. Oh, God. Yeah, you know, we played on tour. That was an interesting tour because we played with the band Jolene. Oh, and those okay. guys. They left the show. They left the tour. That was our only solo show because they had to go remix a song. Oh, wow. and uh, they were so we've been on tour with them. And that show was the day after the drunkest I've ever been in my entire life. Really? Oh, we went out to a bar somewhere the night before. We went to a first. We went to a Chinese restaurant. I forget which one, but they used to always go to it. So they wanted to go, and boy, did we we got wasted. I was blinded, <laughs> and I remember, uh, yeah. Anyway, you probably don't want to hear the whole story, but my glasses, I'm sure, melted in a pool of my own vomit somewhere. I woke really? up and I was oh, I was wasted, and I couldn't see because I lost my glasses. I was so drunk, so I had to go to some mall outside of uh, I don't even know where it was, but I went to a lens crafter and they made me some new glasses. But wow. boy. <laughs> you well, think you remember and yeah. i was in a i remember thinking you know that i don't know if you drink and i don't but i did and uh I, you know you think you're hungry so you should go eat and i remember going to like a chichi's or a chili's one of those mexican restaurants yeah thinking i could i could you know starving and i you know i had like one bite of food and i was like oh my god i raced to the can yeah. of the bathroom of a chili's and i was hunched over the the toy like you know i was sick and above me in this little tiny speaker punishing the speaker was that wilson phillips song hold on for one more day and i remember just laughing i was like you gotta be fucking kidding me yeah it's really funny anyway yeah that's that was an interesting show because i was that hangover lasted about three days and i i'm not joking which was that was a disturbing night of drinking. And that Anyways, was that's, that, that's that my was, memory. That was that was the night of the Columbus show. That was the night before the oh, Columbus the before. show. Okay. We yeah. had a night off. We had a night off in Columbus. So we went. I don't even so blinded was I I don't even recall. Oh yeah. I just well, remember someone, my guitar player, giving me a bath and guiding me into the tub. And he's like, you better go wash yourself off. I mean, yeah. I don't even know. It was, it was awful. It's funny because I have a, I have a very distinct memory of that show as well. Uh, not of you, um, but um, getting, getting a little personal here, but I'll tell you the story. My, my, uh, I got engaged the December before that show. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I were going to have a couple shower. And we were, uh, um, my dad lived in Florida. And so I had given him a call to ask him kind of like if he wanted to participate and kind of what, you know, what role he wanted to play in the wedding. And he never returned the call. And I tried calling him for months and months and months and never returned the call. Yeah. The day of the little brother show, he, he called me up. I hadn't talked to him in six months and he, or yeah, four or five months. And he calls me up. And as soon as I pick up the phone, he just starts yelling at me that I'm ungrateful and that, you know, how dare I, I not, we ended up, it, not that we didn't invite him to the wedding, but he never responded, you know? So yeah. I was, I was not really talking to him at that point. And, uh, 
we didn't talk again for five years after that. And we haven't talked since then for about 10 years. But anyway, the story is that I came, I came to see you guys play at Little Brothers and I was frazzled. I was out of sorts. And you guys covered Dump Trucks Island that night. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I didn't know that song. And just when you were singing Get Off My Island, that, uh-huh. that was like that fit, like me wanting to say that to my dad. Uh-huh. And it, it seemed to be like the perfect, like that song was played at the right time for me to hear. It was the most perfect moment for a terrible day for me. So excellent. So well, it's I'm, funny, glad I I actually, could, I'm glad I could be part of it. <laughs> so it's funny. I've, I, I think I've actually either on Twitter or emailed or something to Joyce asking, did you, did you guys ever record that song? Never. Uh, I don't believe no, I know we didn't. I'm sure there there could be a live version of it someplace, but we never did a studio version of it. Yeah, no need really, because the original version is phenomenal. Oh my God, what a great song that is! Yeah, I don't know and- how if if you know for the country that album by them, if you've uh, had the chance to dig it up after that. But boy, what a freaking masterpiece of a record that is! I did. And it's funny because what happened is I didn't own a turntable either. And I bought, I, I could only find a record. Like I couldn't find it on CD or cassette or any other way to listen to it. So I had a friend who had a, I don't, I, you know, to this day, I don't know how they did it. Somehow they took the vinyl and they made me a CD out of it. Oh and yeah. Cause you could, they had USB when the USB turntables came out for a while, you could go vinyl to CD. Okay. You could make a vinyl record. You could make a CD recording from the vinyl. I still have yeah. a cassette of it. A cassette uh, tape of it. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. So you said the rest of the stuff hopefully is going to be coming out, which is great news. Um, Yeah. And you're you're constantly making music, right? I mean, you've got stuff coming out a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, definitely, yeah. More Um, so than ever, right? Mostly because for about six, seven years, my son – played a kind of a high level baseball youth baseball travel and high level. And I coached for a number of years. And, uh, and so it took up a ton of my time. So I didn't, you know, I probably, my music took a little bit of a slowdown, but ever since he retired from high level competitive ball, my, like, I've just been writing like crazy. Yeah. You know, ever since the pandemic, I've just been gone, gone like, like it was the old days. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it's it's kind of funny. My I have a daughter who plays college lacrosse, and she is uh, out of town this weekend at the NCAA tournaments. Her team made it. She's oh, fantastic. Division three, so it's not you know as intense as as the other divisions. Um, it's still so what? So yeah. you know what it's like. Yeah, I've been a I've been an athlete parent. For many, many, yeah, many I, years. So, and, and I coached. So yeah. there were times when we'd be on a baseball field four or five days a week. Oh, sure. Yeah. I loved it. Glad it's over, but I loved every minute of it. Yeah. So to sort of um, wrap this all up. So tell me, uh, you have a couple of shows coming up. Are you playing Overcome by Happiness, the full album? We are. It's never been done. So, yeah, we and we you know have horns and strings. So we're going to do it. We're going to try to recreate the album, whereas back in the old days, we knew we couldn't because we didn't have the instrumentation. So we just had to do the songs the way we could. But now it's like we're actually going to, you know, have the strings and I have probably going to have 11 
I don't know, 11 or 12 people on stage the whole time. So there'll be a lot of noises and hopefully we can recreate the record more faithfully than, you know, than, be, than we did before. And yeah. so we've never done it. We've never played the whole record. There are some songs, there's a couple songs I don't think I ever played live. I, I, I think so. It'll be a first. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I talked to a lot of bands and that, that is something that, uh, that I that I ask a lot about because, again, probably not thinking that you'd ever celebrate a 25th anniversary and reissue of the album. You probably never thought that you'd play it. And are you planning on playing it in order? I think uh, I think we're going to play it in backwards order because it kind of flows <laughs> better. It gets quieter at the end, and I think we're going to I think we're going to play it in backwards order and end more up than start on the up and end on the low. Because the oh, record ends kind of, the record tails gets kind of dark toward the end. Yeah. And I think we're going to build it up that way. I, I, I was listening to it and I said, you know what? This would be better backwards live. And I think that, and I'm positive that's how we're going to do it. That's, I love that idea. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. So uh, shows in Boston and New York, or those are the two that you're That's doing? right. Just, just two shows. Yeah. And are your, are your days of hopping in a van and going coast to coast done? No, I don't think they are, but I don't know what kind of, uh, I don't know if I would, I, I don't think I would go on tour for five weeks again, yeah. that kind of thing. But I would go and do a, a good size tour. I really do want to do a solo tour. Uh, there's a lot of America I haven't played alone, which uh, I really would like to do. And uh, I want to do a tour. I'm really into cycling. I've become a fanatic. I've always been into bicycles and into cycling. Um, but my mania has is at an all-time high. So I want to do a tour next year where maybe I do a handful of cities, maybe on the West Coast where I travel by bike and do like a, do some solo shows in just a few cities, like maybe Vancouver, Victoria, maybe Seattle, Portland, and do them by bicycle. So there's a few things I want to do that are more interesting than just uh, play clubs again. Yeah, that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, we'll see. So, um, one more question, and if you don't yeah. have an answer, I, I, I ask this for the Dig, Dig Me Out podcast. I ask this question a lot, and um, I'll be honest: a lot of times people don't have an answer for it. So if you don't, that's quite all right. But because are you really whole, setting me up? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make you feel bad about this. So, um, okay. because the podcast is all about reviewing and talking about overlooked, underappreciated albums, is there an album from the '90s that you would recommend that? Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Awesome. And it's one that I ended up reissuing and putting out on my label, which is Homeless House by John Cunningham. Okay. I don't think I know that album. That record, I think it's my favorite. It could be my favorite album of the 90s. Wow. Yeah, it's something else. He, it, I've always loved it. It never got any look. It, uh, and then my partner and I put it out, but we didn't have the kind of money or and to do any kind of real uh, promotion for it. But it just just to have it come out was enough because it wasn't released in America. It's a beautiful, beautiful album. And the interesting story about that is he came to one of my shows in in London. And he, you know, it was on the Overcome by Happiness tour and he gave me a copy of it. And not to be like, uh, I, back then you'd get 10 records a night, like 10 people would give you their record. And I kept them all. And I, you know, I didn't, 
and I made a point to listen to them all, but I didn't listen to them right away just because, you know, you get off a tour and you're frazzled. Anyway, I got back from a tour and I queued up that, I put that CD in and it must've been a month or maybe two months later. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I was blown away. Tom Monaghan and I were listening to it. And we were like, you got to be kidding me. And I got in touch with them from then. I got in touch with them. And then we did shows together. We became friends and I ended up reissuing it. But somebody should take that record and it should be heard because it's a fantastic album. What is the name of the record? Homeless House. Oh, Homeless House. Okay. I will, uh, I will definitely look it up when we're done here. It's a beauty. It's lovely. So I will give you the chance to plug whatever you want. I know Bandcamp is a good thing for you. I know you've got a sub stack that I subscribe to. Um, yes. and that's a, that's a good opportunity for you to get out and, and kind of share stories and write some stuff and share music. Um, yeah, I do. Like I tell a little, I tell, I pick a song of mine. I'll, I wrote every song I've ever written, maybe with the exception of one or two on an acoustic guitar. So no matter how they end up, they always start with me on an acoustic guitar. So I've ended up doing this sub stack where I just do the recording as I wrote it. And it sounds, you know, it's stripped down to just a, a song, a guy in a song. And I do, I do a recording of it, of the song. And then I tell like some little tales about the making of the recording of it or whether it's the, how the song came about, you know, nothing super intense or technical, but uh, it's just a kind of a, it's fun for me because I get to play. Sometimes when I do a song, I wrestle with the, how to produce it. You know, I might do a song that could be recorded five different ways, and there are times when I've done a song one way and I'm like, oh, I wish I had just released that as me on an acoustic guitar, you know, to get at just the raw, the raw song. And this is kind of a cool way for me to have it both ways. So I can do my fuller studio recordings and I can kind of feel like I uh, showed the song in the way that I kind of fell off, the way it fell on me, you know? Yeah, yeah. That, you know, it's pretty fun. That's great. Well, I appreciate being able to talk to you 25 years later. <laughs> yeah, well, better late than never. I say, uh, you never returned my call. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Who tried to love me?